Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Moth. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are joined by Dr. Dennis Moore, who is an award-winning teacher and mentor, winning Florida State University's University Teaching Award and Distinguished Teaching Award in 1993, 1999, and 2017. In 2018, he began his role as a founding mentor for the Society of Early Americanist Junior Scholar Caucus. He's also a life member of the Toni Morrison Society, the Smithsonian's NMAAHC, and the even newer International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. Three years ago, Dr. Moore retired from FSU and dusted off his freelance writing and editing business, visions, revisions, and more. He's also created a few legacy projects, one of which is the Barbara Stevens Hussle Research Fund for Early Career Scholars within the International Iris Murdoch Appreciation Society and the Moore Family Scholarships for first-generation students at Clemson. Dr. Uh, Dennis Moore is joining us today to discuss how we can approach teaching scenes of racial violence in literature and everything that's associated with that. Don't you honored to be in this company right now, Margaret? No, I'm really excited. I've, Paige and I have really been looking forward to this Captain. and we've been talking about it and we're really excited. Well, I've been looking forward to it and, and really there's just so very much to talk about. And so given how much there is, I've, I've made the uh, probably arbitrary decision that the examples I'm gonna mention are from Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is just overflowing, just overflowing with examples of violence. and. And I mentioned to the two of you in, in, in exchange of emails recently, I asked if it was okay to quote uh, myself because uh, my better half, Barbara Heisel, who, whose name appears in those scholarships, Margaret, that you mentioned, we uh, were at Chapel Hill when, when I was doing my PhD work. And that was at the time that this novel, that Toni Morrison published this amazing novel, Beloved. And before it ever made paperback, in other words, it was really new. And, and I'd read so much and heard so much about it that I got us a copy. And part of a what's amounted to a decades-long uh, habit of ours, uh, we read books together. And more often than not, it, that really amounts to my reading it to Barbara. And so with, with Beloved, we got to the end of it. And, and I'm going to quote myself. And I'm even going to admit that in the middle of the sentence, which wasn't that long, but in the middle of the sentence, there was a semicolon being an English major. So what I said was, I don't know how the fuck you can talk about this book, semicolon. I've got to teach it. And it is it's, it's one that's really com- it's compelling to read. You guys know that. And folks out there in Zoom land, I hope, know it too. And it's one that you want to talk about. And, and it's one that's hard to talk about. Uh, and partly because of the violence. And partly because of the kind of perpetual nature of a lot of the violence that Morrison portrays uh, in there. I find that novel incredibly difficult to talk about uh, since becoming a mother. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, Margaret, is that I read this novel as an undergrad in more than one class and then reading it in grad school after having children it's so much more visceral like for me personally mm-hmm. and so i i really like that quote of i don't know how to how to talk about this novel i've got to teach it and i think that's interesting to think about to how we move into teaching stuff in order Like, not just for our students to interpret it, but for ourselves to begin to grasp these complicated worlds and issues as well. There's something to that, too. I think of the, I don't know if it's ineffable or ineffability or whatever, but the ineffable nature of this type of violence. In one of my grad classes, we watched 
a documentary about the Truth and Reconciliation Com uh, Commission in South Africa and talked about how they had headphones for everyone because they had to have so many different um, translators because there's so many different native languages that needed to be represented. But the translators talked about that one of the challenges is that some people, when they testified, it was just screams of grief that people would just get on this stand and wail. And the question was, how do you translate grief? How do you translate trauma? And there's no words for it. And then there's never words for it. And I think that's something that's important to this literature is that there's, it's also about the silences in it and, and that there is no word sometimes. And in the novel, it is so interesting about who, who is silent and who must be silent mm -hmm. and who has the option of not being silent at all. Which I guess we have some answers already to some of the questions we wanted to talk about, but Paige, do you want to kick us off and, and diving into this? Yeah, so uh, we were thinking through or talking through a quote by Danzy Cena, where every work of American literature is about race, whether the writer knows it or not. And we were really interested to hear your thoughts on this idea and how, you know, maybe you bring or have brought that into that idea into the classroom. Well, it, I, I certainly agree with that quotation. And if anything, I agree with it uh, more than ever, not because I retired, but I agree with it more than ever, because in this uh, moment here in April of 2022, there's just so much uh, noise, but, but more to the point, there's so much more uh, violence going on that has to do with uh, the content of what we may and may not read and what we may and may not teach. And there's this thing that uh, is apparently hideous uh, it's like from the devil is critical race theory. And of course, I've never been to law school and I really don't expect to, to go. But, but my understanding is that critical race theory is uh, a topic, you know, is a subject that one would encounter and interrogate and perhaps make sense of as a law student and would be able to apply it in one's practice as a lawyer, maybe as a judge, maybe as a Supreme Court justice. That's, that's kind of another conversation. But in other words, in, in, the, in the current atmosphere of, of uh, attacks on critical race theory, a lot of those attacks so far have been, at the level of language, have been very violent. But it's easy to see, and I'm not, you know, who's, I'm not forecasting, I'm not predicting. Um, I think Yogi Berra said it's hard to predict, especially about the future. But I, I mean, it's, it's easy to believe that at some point, say, between now and the midterms, yikes. It's easy to believe that, that there could be some form of physical violence, you know, of actual violence, maybe toward teachers, maybe toward parents. I don't know. But but in, in terms of the novel that I think it'd be really productive to, to talk about some more uh, in terms of Beloved, there's so much violence. And a lot of it, a lot of it is understated, but a lot of it is incredibly explicit. And so, for example, there's the painful section where one of the two main characters, Setha, tries to murder her children and it's not it's not out of meanness it's not out of boredom it's not you know it's not it's not something at all arbitrary nor is it anything that you know in rereading the novel recently i still can't find any evidence that she is deliberately you know consciously planning you know okay thursday i'll you know get groceries but then on friday what i'm going to do is, is murder my baby if anything it seems to be much more visceral just in reaction to what's going on and what's going on is the slave catchers and the sheriff have arrived to take her back into the life of an enslaved person. 
and to, and to take those babies too, because those babies, those little pieces of property that are babies are really valuable too. And and I, I remember in, in looking at, at the novel recently, I remember there's a one of many throwaway lines. Tony Marson has the narrator say that from Stamp Page's perspective, let me see, and I jotted it down because this way, if I garble it, would be because it's so illegible, but mm-hmm. um, Stamp Page called it Setha's rough response to the fugitive bill. So incredibly understated. But in, in reading the novel and and Paige, I'd be interested in knowing when you when you said you read it when you were thinking high school. I'd be interested in knowing how much of that context that has to do really with you know what what's the fugitive bill? When was that? And was that it must have been before the civil, you know, in other words, a lot of those details, but Tony Morrison manages in that little throwaway line to make it sound like Stamp Page has made sense of it. You know, because partly because he he was there and lived through it, uh, and and uh, he lived through it in a passage where the narrator, who's not the main narrator, uh, the narrator who seems to be channeling the thoughts of these slave catchers, the narrator refers to this, and pardon me, this crazy old nigger who would be stamp paid, and this crazy old woman who's there too, and she's kind of doing her hands like she's brushing away cobwebs or something. That's uh, baby thugs. So in other words, it's it's something that that the characters are living. And, and to the extent that's possible for people making sense of. Paige, let me let me pose a question to you because you mentioned a minute ago that you that you've read Beloved uh, several times, and I think yeah. you said that the earliest time you read it, you were in I think in high high school. Yeah, so I I didn't mention that before, but I did read it in high school and then in undergrad multiple mm-hmm. times in undergrad for more than one class, and then in grad school. So I've had like these different versions of it, and I, and so. Dr. Moore, I think you were going to ask about the Fugitive Act. Was that? Mm-hmm. But go ahead and ask your question. Well, again, I'm, just, I'm wondering how much of that, what we think of as historical context, and a lot of it is political and so on. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. other words, in the, in the novel, you're reading it, and I call it a throwaway line where the narrator refers to stamp paid thinking of Setha's uh, excessive response or whatever to the Fugitive right. Bill. But when you, were re- when you were a high school kid, you were mm-hmm. reading it, did the teacher... Or did any did anybody mention? Oh, the fugitive bill has got to be the 1850 fugitive slave law, which was one in a series of laws that Congress passed. Uh, no, I don't. Control. Think, I don't think we had any of that context. And I remember sort of being a reader or being a part of a reading cohort there that oversimplified this this sort of trauma response, right, that you were talking about in terms of mm-hmm. it's not premeditated. It's this just this moment of responding to this terrible situation and the trauma of it and trying to protect your children in any way whatsoever. And I don't think that that was something largely that those of us reading it in high school fully understood or were given enough context. And I think it's important yeah. to mention here that you know, I went to public school in South Carolina where the narrative about uh, slavery and slavery in South Carolina was revisionist and whitewashed in a lot of ways. And so it was much easier to see Setha as, you know, villainous, uh, which is not a good reading of the text mm, at all. Maybe crazy, maybe, maybe evil. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm also interested in how you have, because full disclosure, I have not taught this text. It makes me so emotional in terms of sort of interacting with it. So I'm interested in how you have in the past prepped students for these really visceral, violent scenes. What do you think about trigger warnings? What kind of ground rules have you given them in terms of how they talk about it? How do you 
reorient students that also oversimplify it and maybe see Setha as crazy or evil in some way. What have you done in the past? Well, and again, I mentioned that I have had the opportunity, the privilege of teaching it several times. And, and I've never found a simple way. I'm, I'm sure there are simple ways to do it, but I mean, that would take us back to just treating it as just, it's all made up. Maybe the woman's crazy, you know? Yeah, her name's Garner. And yeah, we happen to know that there was a woman in real life called Mar- Margaret Garner who killed her baby, you know, back in the day. But and there might be a connection, might not. Well, you know, we don't need to worry about that because we got to finish this book, you know, and move on. So as far as how to prepare them, you ask about trigger warnings. I don't really, I, I haven't, tried to keep count, but there have been a number of times when I probably should have uh, talked with the class about trigger warnings in advance, you know, mm-hmm. maybe in advance of reading this novel. But one thing that I have found works is to walk, and again, this this involves, uh, pardon the expression, close reading, okay? But it, it does involve walking them through a lot of what is on the page in the first 10 or 20 or 30 or, or more pages. In other words, what is Morrison doing to show the reader not only what's coming, but what's in the past for these characters. I mentioned a minute ago, a few minutes ago, I, I referred to Seth as one of the, I think of her as one of the two main characters. And, and there I'm, I'm thinking about her and, and Baby Sook. And, and there are three, if we count Paul D. It's really tempting you know, to count Paul D. But early in the novel, these two former slaves, right, who haven't seen each other, how long? About 18 years. Yeah. They haven't seen each other at all. And he shows up out of the blue, almost like a ghost, but, but he's he's actually there. And of course, they'd known each other very well, and they had they'd been, they'd been close. They, the cohort that they'd been part of was the slaves at this plantation in, uh, in Kentucky pretty close to the Ohio River, a plantation whose owner called it Sweet Home. And, and he, I'm sure he wasn't an English major, so I'm sure he wasn't being ironic, clever, or, you know, postmodern. But uh, Sweet Home is such a resonant name. And matter of fact, y'all, the next time you get to go to D.C., I bet you you'll, I'm, I'm jealous because you'll get to go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And, and my own limited experience of being there a couple of times is that the cafe they have, you know, and like, a lot of good museums, a lot of wonderful museums in D.C. have a cafe. And the one at the at NMAAHC, they call Sweet Home. Yeah. So I know, anyway, and I'm sure that's not coincident. But early in this novel, these two characters who had lived at Sweet Home and managed to get out of it, they're trying to figure out what does she know? What does he know about, you know, about how we got out of it? What happened to her husband? You know, what all happened in the novel? Well, you haven't asked about it. I'm glad you haven't. But there's a a film adaptation of this novel, and which I, my own personal response to it is, it's not very good. But one point in, in, in that film version, there's a line that, and don't tell Tony Morrison I said this, but kind of improves on the text by one word. Because in, in that scene, early in the novel, when Tony Morrison's showing us what, what to expect, given what we, the story we can piece together about, about their shared path. And one of the first things that Seth says to Paul D is you're looking good. And again, that's, that sounds really Southern. Uh, it sounds a little bit more Southern in the movie adaptation because uh, when when the Seth character says that to the Paul D character, Paul D gets to add a word to it, to his response. So Seth says to Paul D, you're looking good. And in the book, Paul D says, the devil's confusion, you know, as if the devil will do that so people don't understand what's really going on. Well, in the movie, uh, Danny Glover gets to say the devil's own confusion. So nice little, nice little touch. But again, that's part of the early part of the novel when Toni Morrison, she's not just filling up pages. She's showing us what these two characters need to learn from each other 
and how they go about learning. And so by, again, by doing a little bit of close reading in those first few pages, but on page so-and-so, when he's thinking about, you know, does she know about it? What in the world? What What's that? You know, when we come in, when we come at class, the day I've had them read maybe the first 20 page, that's a scene, you know me, I'm going to ask them about that. And some of them, you know, because some of them have read it before, maybe in high school, but some of them will say, I don't know what that was. I thought it was a typo or, you know, maybe somebody will say, I thought it was something that'll become clearer pretty soon. And of course it is. And I, I know someone who's a much better teacher than I'll ever be, but she, I, I've heard her talk about this kind of pattern in the beginning of Beloved. And I know she's, she told her students, when you're reading, if you find something you don't really get, you know, that's, that's not, it's obviously not self-explanatory. Read a little bit further because the text will show you a little bit more of the background so you can understand it. So I, I borrowed that technique and it, do, it does help because those little details build up. As a matter of fact, it's, if it's okay, I'm going to reach over here and, and hold up a prop. Sure. It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. It's just a little jar of beans. And I got these from my dad, my late father, who, like the characters in this novel, grew up in the country. And when I asked him if he had some beans, he wanted to know what for. And I said, well, I'm teaching this novel and, and they talk about beans. And, and I know a lot of the students will not be familiar with it. And my dad, he didn't sneer because he wasn't, a sneering guy, but he was like, you know, those pitiful people that don't know about beans. But there's a passage in the in the novel, and I can give you the page number if you need it, but there's a passage where the narrator refers to gossip and talks about the way that when Setha arrived down at the river, again, this is 18 years early, right? But when Setha arrived at the river, she she entered a kind of realm where gossip was incredibly important for these runaway slaves so they could figure out who might have preceded and who might be following me really closely and about to catch up with me. So the narrator talks about coming into a place where where bits of news, again, there's bits, but it's a different bit, where bits of news had to soak in like beans and spring water. And again, that, when I, the students about that, they say, well, I guess you have to, it has to soak in. And, and I said, well, you got a bean here. What happens if you just eat it as it? And of course, the polite answer is you'll, you'll blow up. Uh, but again, the, you know, there's that kind of down to earth or down home way that Morrison has her narrator remind readers that sometimes something has to soak in before you can really, how to say, digest it. So again, that that's part of the, the kind of pattern that I've tried to work with to get students to work with to see, yeah, I don't understand what's going on here on page X, but if I work with it and if I keep reading, you know, and if I go to class, then maybe I can figure out a little bit more fully what, what Morrison's doing, what strings she's pulling. Not only you get these characters doing stuff, but to get us as readers doing stuff and thinking about it. Maybe that has to be one of our classroom mantras, right? That to let it soak in. I like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just thinking about Beloved and all of this context behind it that students might not be aware of or might not even know to look for. Right. Are there scholarly works that might be particularly helpful provided to provide this context or just to help them understand the subtext and, and deeper associations with violence and, sure. and race and helping sure. them prepare for that? Yeah, there's, you know, so it's no surprise that there's a tremendous, in, in terms of quantity and, and also in terms of quality, there's a tremendous amount of material of scholarship, of commentary on, on, on Morrison's fiction in general and, and on Beloved in particular. And one, one source, one scholar to turn to is, is a, a, a highly decorated professor at Florida State University who in the last 
two weeks, we've learned that she is the latest in a series of Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professors, which is as, as high as the honors go for FSU faculty members and, and richly, richly, richly deserved for Maxine Montgomery, uh, who, among other things, gave me this other prop upon returning from a farmer's, farmer's market or something here in, in Tallahassee. And she said, Dennis, I know you'd like because she she and I both, it's a, it's a tobacco tent. And if, yeah, and if you're reading Beloved, or if the students sitting in front of you are reading Beloved, when they see the reference to tobacco tin, they might be able to visualize it, and they might not. Well, this one's actually from Kentucky, which made it an especially thought gift from Maxine Montgomery. But in, before I got this, in other words, now that I have it, anytime I'm teaching Beloved, I'm likely to waive that class early in the discussion of Beloved, because there are those references to Paul D's heart being sort of locked inside a tobacco tin in his chest. Now, that's a down-home expression, a down-home way of describing the feeling that a person might well have if if, you're, if if that person's feelings and emotions are too volatile, maybe too dangerous, not violent necessarily, but too, you know, too much just to let, let go. So uh, before, before I got that little, really thoughtful little gift, what I would do is not necessarily wave last in class, but, you know, a lot of the students in, in a lot of the colleges and universities you know, especially in, in this part of the country in the Southeast, a lot of them are either participate in or know people who do participate in, how do we say, the Greek system. And a lot of times one badge of that participation, if you're a guy at least, is to have a hip flask so that when you, because you got to go to football games and one, one thing you carry with you, in addition to a good looking woman, uh, is a hip flask so that you can sort of booze it up, you know, at regular intervals. So again, and as far as props, if, if, uh, if there's students who can't quite get what Marson's having a narrator talk about when she, because she'll mention it several times about that tobacco tip. It's a little container that is really cheap and that if you put your heart in it and you're not careful, it could get locked in there and be hard, 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 hard to get out of if and when you ever need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, close reading. Huh? Yeah. No, that, that's really interesting. And, and thinking about, again, that context that students might not be aware of, not know how to search for. What you were saying earlier too about tracking it was making me think too about how that parallels the journey so many people have to take to reclaim history that you you hear things and you don't know what it means or where it came from. And when you start going back to search for it, it's shrouded in those things that can't be said for whatever reason and how to parse through it and reclaim that. And that particularly for Beloved, how it's mirroring that, that how do you wade through all of that. Well, I'm sorry, but again, it's wading through layers of stuff, much of which Toni Morrison has had her narrator just put right in front of us, right in, that, right in our path. And then as readers, we, you know, it'd be tempting sometimes just to kind of step over it because you don't know what it is. But with a little bit of discussion, it is possible to point out, look, look how much richer this page is when we realize exactly what she's showing us without telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, another, another thing to think about, and I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, stop me if this is I know we haven't talked about this, but in other words, I don't think I'm changing the subject either as far as figuring out ways to help students, some of whom might well have read or might well have read the book before. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of whom might well have found, and I don't know, I don't want to know, frankly, but I don't know if there's a Cliff's Notes to, or, you know, a, a dummy's guide to Tony Morrison. But in other words, one way to deal with a class whom you've told to read this book is to think about some of the musical cues that Tony Morrison gives us. And, and one of them is very early. Again, I, it sounds like I've only read the first few pages of the novel, but thinking about helping students find their way into the novel mm-hmm. when Setha and Paul D are talking about what it was like back at Sweet Home. And neither one of them 
seems to have the least desire to relive it. So it's not nostalgia, but when they're talking about it, she especially can picture, and, and it's hard to talk about, but she can picture the bodies of young black men hanging from those and I think the narrator even says the most beautiful sycamore trees in the world. Mm-hmm. There's a song, and I'm sure there are a lot of songs that that kind of visual image might suggest, but one that I'm, I'll bet you Tony Morrison had in mind was that song Strange Fruit. And we associate it with Billy Holiday. We associate it certainly with, um, in other words, with this idea of slavery and, and the, the ways that slavery was, was so destructive, not only to the enslaved people, but to the culture and to the society. So that's that's a cue. And, and a lot of them, a lot of them are even willing to go, whoa, I, I would have missed that. And an, an, another similar bit of detail that Toni Morrison is laying out in front of us, but not explicit. There's a passage uh, where Setha decides she's going to lay down her sword and shield. And I, if I were a more organized person, I would have, this morning, I would have looked up and found the page references. But it's not, you know, they have this thing called Google, and it's not that hard to find. But in those references to sword and shield, there's really, I mean, we know there's nothing arbitrary about that especially if if we think about or realize or find out that there's a song called Down by the Riverside. And part of the refrain in that song is, ain't going to study war no more. Going to lay down my sword and shield, ain't going to study war no more. And again, a lot of students, even mentioning it to that extent, can, can prompt this thing that a lot of students are really good at, which is rolling their eyes like, well, he'll, he'll, he'll come back to the book when he gets finished talking about this. But if and when you want to show them uh, a, a video of, of someone who was really, really, really influential in the middle part of the 20th century, in other words, at the time that Toni Morrison was a kid, but I guess more to the point, when her parents' generation would have known this singer, her name is Rosetta Tharp, Sister Rosetta Tharp. And, and I, I should have known this long, longer ago, back when I was getting to teach the novel, but her recording down by the Riverside, I think, is, is one that the Library of Congress has added to the you know, this this kind of permanent wall, a log of really influential American songs. I actually show um, clips of her on YouTube to my students, again, when um, teaching Corrigadora, because um, Corrigadora, she sings, uh, Ursa sings some of the those same songs. And so we listen yeah. to them yeah. and thinking about, which I think obviously Toni Morrison is diving into as well, the different ways um, we respond to violence and trauma and, and yeah. what outlets are available and, and oral culture being one of those that we pass down uh, stories, we pass down songs, we pass down names, gossip even. And, and these are the kind of artifacts and sur- survivors of- mm-hmm. The traces, the scars. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. But that would be a really fun dream course, right? To teach Toni Morrison- multiple Toni Morrison novels and the musical cues, yes. musical influences. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, in, in leading up to, you guys were kind enough to invite me to be part of this. I just I appreciate that so much because it's so good. To, Paige, it's good to see you again. And Margaret, it's awfully good to meet you. And you're making me wish I'd, I'd been taking your course to, to learn some more about Corregidora with you. But in advance of this Easter weekend conversation, you guys mentioned this idea of dream course. And so, um, you, you, you sort of dangled that in front of me and said, you know, if I wanted to suggest one, I could. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to mention a, just an imaginary one that I'd like to do one of these days. But I will mention that in, in two different situations, while teaching at Florida State University, I, I was able to include Beloved in the context of some other materials. And so in, in one of those courses, uh, I had them read, and you'll think I'm making this up, but you know me, I'm not making it up. 
in one of the courses, I had the students read Uncle Tom's Cab and then read, and they hated Uncle Tom. And, and, you know, that would be another podcast to talk about reasons to hate it or not hate it. But by seeing what Stowe was doing and then seeing what Morrison does with it, it's easy. And, and I never required any of the students to, to agree with this, but I, they, they understood, they came to understand that one way I see Beloved, and it's, it's simplistic, but it worked. One way to see Beloved is as Uncle Tom's Cabin 2.0, because if anything, she takes a lot of the plot lines and does a whole, well, duh, does a lot more with them than Stowe. But again, so the idea, the idea there is not to fill time in a semester at all, but the idea is to show them that there's more on the page here that Morrison is certainly aware and is playing with and is troubling to help us see, you know, what does the history of uh, violence towards slavery, how far might it go back? What does it tell us about how integral that violence is to American history? And so, I mean, in that sense, it's, I think of it as not so much, I, when I've taught that, it wasn't so much as a dream course, but as a way, another way of approaching Beloved, rather than just, okay, good morning. Some of you had to read this in, what, 10th grade, 11th grade? So what do you think? What's going on? Rather than just kind of dumping it on them, mm-hmm. uh, showing them part of the context that Marson worked with so beautifully. Yeah, and then then I got another uh, kind of thread to mention, but it's not it's not from the early you know first hundred pages. But Margaret, please. Oh no no no! I was saying that you were making me think of how you. Oh oh oh! Excuse me, forgive me. I, <laughs> but that's that's what we get underpaid to do, right? Is to help students think of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You were making me think of like you could do a really interesting thread with students with Uncle Tom's Cabin, Richard Wright's Uncle Tom's Children, Toni Morrison's yeah. Beloved, and Ishmael Reed's Flight to Canada. Yeah. And yeah. thinking through that, how do we respond to, to this sort of violence? How do we respond to its legacy? How do we understand the identities that are formed in, in response to it, despite of it? Um, I'm sorry, but and how do those texts speak to each other? Yes, yes. And, and, and see, really, I mean, that, that, list you're describing. I love that list. And, and I would suggest adding, if you, you let's squeeze one more book in Invisible Man. Um, mm. You know, I mean, if, if and when somebody reads it, one of the things you're going to encounter at the very beginning is a whole lot of violence. Again, there's this boxing scene where the right. young, you know, the young character, uh, he's manipulated into a position of being uh, almost a clown in participating in some boxing and being in a situation where the ring, where the boxing is going to take place, the canvas that they're on, they don't tell him ahead of time, but it's, it's electrified. So, you know, it's, it's, it's violence, but, but there's also cruelty. So again, there's, that's, again, that's another form that some of this violence is, you know, that we've, we've been able to see it in text preceding uh, Beloved. And, and I, I don't, I don't know that it matters, but I'll admit that before I read Beloved, and from my own narrow perspective, that novel Invisible Man, which, yeah, I just mentioned it, but, and I didn't mention it random, but before I encountered Beloved, I I believe that Invisible Man was the most impressive and influential novel in the 20th century. And pre-Beloved, that, you know, that made sense. But with Beloved, I don't I don't think there's any real question that Beloved is, is, is certainly far more influential. And certainly far more powerful than even you know, Invisible Man or Native Son. In other words, a lot of the books that preceded chronologically. Yeah. I, I wonder, since we're talking about these texts that show such cruelty, and oftentimes to teach them thoroughly, we're putting them in conversations with other texts as we're talking about, 
how do you help your students not feel defeated or hopeless or just exhausted, like that they still feel that there's potential, there's hope, and, and they're still able to continue their sort of journeys and explorations with this. Do you, do you have well, any? It's, it's hard. And, and uh, again, I, I, have, I have retired. I'm a recovering professor, right? But, but I think if, if, if this were a course I was teaching, say, this semester, uh, one thing I would do to, to try to help keep them from getting totally discouraged is say, ignore the news. Mm. Don't listen to the news. Uh, if you happen to be in, or if there's somebody in your family you care about who's in Florida, don't listen to the news because there, you know, there, there are patterns and tides that are threatening the possibility of, of even examining these connections we're talking about and the history we're talking about, and the, the, the damage that the history and the violence in the history continues to to wreak on on our society. A minute ago, I was going to suggest another thread, and, and it, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not another thread, but it's another example in in the novel Beloved. Uh, that that gives gives readers so much to talk about, and it's one that involves stamp pay, and it's one that involves his kind of obtuseness in between being such a gossip and such a gossip monger. You know, he's out in the uh, kind of in the woods, and I think if I'm not mistaken, it's on one of his treks over to 124 to snoop around and listen to what's going on and try to make sense of it, which he can't do. But in in, in one of those walks through the woods down by this stream he he sees a little piece of ribbon and he picks it up it doesn't take him long to understand that it's not just a stray piece of ribbon but it's wrapped around the hair of a black child who somebody has how do we say scalp in other words the, the kind of violence that he well picks up the questions come up and it's such an important issue about how to how to help students avoid the almost automatic response of god this is so depressing i'm going to change my major i can't you know, I can't stand this. You know, there's no, is there any hope? And that's hard. You know, that's hard. And, and I mean, one, one uh, way to improve on that feeling, I think, is to take more literature courses. And, and again, to, no, but I mean, I'm not, folks, I'm not kidding. You know, is to, is to learn a little bit more about how much is available in terms of representing and treating these issues and the, and the issues of violence and the issues of responsibility and social responsibility. And so that's not, I mean, that's not a, it might sound glib, and I know that's not an easy solution, but there's so many more pieces to the puzzle. And it seems like that's, to me, that's part of the advantage of a, a liberal arts education, you know, for undergraduates, is to get a sense of what, not only what, what some of the big issues are, but how high the stakes are on some of those issues. Mm -hmm. And also in teaching books where you have these unmitigated examples of, of violence, they aren't all like entirely hopeless, right? Beloved is also about uh, community and the power of community. And I think a lot about like Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys, which is an oh, incredibly oh, harrowing, oh. difficult novel with just gruesome violence against children, but also mm -hmm. about friendship um, mm -hmm. and the importance of, of friendship. And so part of what we can do, I think, with our students is not oversimplify the violence or avoid it, but also right. point out that these novels aren't just about violence, right? They're so complicated. There's so much happening on the page. And there, there are moments of hope and goodness, right? Like, and that sounds a little bit glib as well, but. But they're there. And, yeah. and, they're, and again, it's, I think it's at least as, it's worth pointing them out, at least as much as pointing out the references I talked about a few minutes ago about the bit and the, you know, what, what are all these little throw, these seemingly little throwaway things that that the narrators have in Paul D think about early in the book. Because in other words, it's, they're pieces of the puzzle. Definitely, definitely. And that's making me think 
doc, uh, Dr. Moore, what you were saying about take more English classes and Paige, what you were saying about the, these moments of hope, also thinking about where in literature we have these moments of resistance against this sort of violence and different types mm -hmm. of violence. And I think a, a scholarly work that I, I might want to include in the future is Sidia Hartman's Venus in Two Acts, where she yeah. talks about, you yeah, know, learning great. about that sort of violence and wanting to respond to it and thinking through all the different ethics of that. But part of that response wanting to be, I want to give them a happier ending. I want to give them some sort of resolution, mm -hmm. uh, but that there's so many ways that that resolution can come forth and, and what role literature might be playing with that resolution. Yeah, so I, I think there used to be a, used to be bumper stickers that said, come to resolution. Oh wait, that was come to revolution. But, but uh, some, somebody, one of you mentioned uh, Colson White a minute ago, and and uh, in terms of juxtaposing, say, Beloved, Corregidor, with other novels that have as much to talk about, uh, Underground Railroad is just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing read, and uh, I have yet to see Barry Jenkins' adaptation of it, and it's not that I've been putting it off, I just, you know, there, there are other things we, we have to do that require our attention more immediately, but I'm, I trust that that book is so powerful and that Barry Jenkins is such a you know, great storyteller that, you know, it'll be worth my time in, in seeing it. And, and it seems like another, you know, another question that I'm reminding myself of is, what do we do with, with texts, with works of fiction in a world where these adaptations and spinoffs are so readily available? How can we and how do we motivate the students to go ahead and read this book rather than just going to, you know, to to Google or someplace or Wikipedia, you know, to see what's it about, uh, what's he going to ask about, what you know, who are the main mm -hmm. characters? How, how do we make it a, a task or an assignment that that really rewards them? Whether whether it rewards them with an easy answer, you know, an optimistic feeling or not. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm asking a real hard question, but I think it's one that, if anything, is 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 more, uh, you know, it's an issue that's very much in play given. Um, you know, the, the amazing proliferation of subscription services and so on, where it's, you know, it's fairly easy to sit down and just watch. It's, it's a lot simpler in terms of time and maybe concentration to sit down and watch, say, the, you know, the movie version or the adaptation of such and such a book rather than me. I really like how you pose that question in terms of like, how do we reward our students for doing the actual reading versus like, how do we punish them? Like, how, what punitive measures um, do we take to make sure that they're not, you know, Googling or Wikipedia or whatever? And I don't have an answer, but I think just asking the question that way is moving us towards a better answer. Well, I, I was thinking that one sort of practical answer is include it on your syllabus. So you are reading the book and watching the adaptation. So there's the expectation of we're going to talk about the differences. You're going to, we're going to talk about how the adaptation works. But something I'm interested in with that and, and with all of these scenes is what role the viewer or reader plays and how complicit they are in these acts of violence because mm -hmm. you're watching this violence willingly to an extent. And with a book, there, to me, there's always this higher level of complicitness because by reading it, you're furthering the action. If you stop reading, it doesn't happen. But if you continue, you watch it unfold versus 
watching it on a screen, you're allowed to be that passive absorber, but that also means you get to kind of, I don't know. I sometimes think about, sometimes we watch these types of movies, read these types of books to let ourselves off the hook from asking further questions. Mm -hmm. And I think with the adaptations that sometimes becomes more, more common of, I watched that movie, so I'm aware of this and I don't have to take any further steps. Um, And maybe bringing that conversation into the classroom of we're reading this, we're watching this, we're talking about this, but what are the next steps with this? But but I, I, I agree uh, really heartily, Margaret, about, about the advantage of just laying out that possibility of that framework in the syllabus. So that so again, it's not a matter of you know three or four or ten weeks in saying, why aren't you guys reading this? Who, you know, who told you to go look at Netflix? Come on. You know, because I mean that that would be that's a rant that would it, it might make it to YouTube, you know, from somebody <laughs> in the back, you know, having their phone out. But it's not, it doesn't, there's nothing constructive. There wouldn't be anything constructive, kind of living that kind of uh, teaching life. Um, another thing that in, in terms of living a teaching life, it, I do know that as, as graduate students and then as members of the profession, um, you know, there, there are issues about what we do with, with what we get out of a piece of writing, what we do with what we get out of the context, you know, our scholarship. And I just wonder, and this is a question I'll toss toward the two of you, uh, are you finding ways, maybe, you know, whether it's with beloved or not, because it's, it's none of my business, but I hope you're finding ways to incorporate some of the insights that teaching leads you to into your own scholarship. And I, God, I just made that sound like a yes or no question, but I hope you will. What's that, Margaret? What were you oh, I was letting you answer first. Or, or... Oh, I mean, um, well, so I am teaching a lot of comp these days, but I am teaching a class in during May Mester that's going to focus on uh parable of the sower. And mm-hmm. I would like mm-hmm. to use some of that to apply for a RISE grant, which is um, University of South Carolina's sort of research grant for next summer. And maybe go out and look at some of Octavia Butler's archive and such. So, and then Margaret and I have hopes of eventually using some podcast stuff, um, stuff in quotations, um, <laughs> for like a joint publication at some point. Yeah. Well, do we want to start wrapping up because we told you we would not take up too much of your time and we are. Um, Well, I mean, there's still, there's still a lot to, to talk about, but I just, I'm just so grateful that you guys asked if I wanted to be part of this conversation because I do think of it that I, I don't think of it as one that, you know, that would be worth having if, if we had to do it in just one hour and then go, you know, take a walk or, or go get a beer or something. Although yeah. both of those sound kind of tempting. <laughs> well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, even though I've been it's been a little spotty going in and out for me. I have so many notes written down and I really, I don't know, I just really appreciate that you were willing to chat with us. And I think I'm, I won't commit to teaching Beloved right now, but I will say that I feel more prepped to do so. Yeah, at some point in the future. And Margaret, have you taught Beloved before? No, I was saying earlier that I've taught Gail Jones' Corrigadora, which right. Tony Morrison, I think Beloved is a response to. And I've taught Song of Solomon, but I have mm. not taught Beloved. I've taught um, Song of Solomon and Tar Baby, so. But I'm excited to incorporate in the future. And, and I want to just echo Paige. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a really, really, I think, 
productive. I don't know. I just feel like I've learned a lot. Well, I, I know I have to, and I just, what I want to do, I don't know if we're wrapping up. We probably, it feels like we're wrapping up, but I want to mention, this is not name dropping, but I want to mention uh, Bell Hook. She's very quotable. And one of her quotations I've, I've been guilty of putting at the foot of emails uh, for years. And, and I really, I've, I'm being a lazy person in this conversation. I've never looked up to see where, what it's from, but it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Um, the academy is not paradise, but learning is a place where paradise can be created. You know, I choose to believe it. Yeah. And then there's also this one of one of her books is Teaching to Transgress. What a it's such a good book. What a title. And then uh, she came to FSU several years ago and I got to be her host and I got to take her to Lake Ellen walking around, you know. And so I of course I asked her if she had signed a book. And so she and again it's all lowercase, of course, but she and and the first word has two exclamation points after it. Dennis, exclamation point, exclamation point. To the joy of teaching, to the solidarity of soul. Wow. So, uh, you know, there are some good people that are and have been among us. And that there, I think there's some uh, hope in that. You know, maybe once in a blue moon getting to be around them, but certainly getting to have them around us as we read what they've had to say. It's a, a book that uh, before, before anybody pressed the record button, I know a book that I've mentioned, uh, Paige, you sort of light it up. Uh, Taya Miles has this book, uh, All That She Carried. It's just an amazing, and she's a historian, but it's an amazing uh, piece of storytelling. You know? uh, and some, and if I, I'm not going to drop this other name, but I'll mention this other, this brilliant scholar, Imani Perry. Mm-hmm. And my advice is anything of hers that you can get hold of. Uh, she was very, she was at this, she was at the center of a conference that took place in Birmingham. Uh, last month and she was it was brilliant uh so it, it was wonderful getting to have her there yeah, so thank well, you and and and, and I, people who know me know that I'm, I'm you know the danger is i'll close by quoting not so much bell hooks but the king uh and and just say uh thank you very much <laughs> thank you and also thank you for all those really wonderful reading recommendations i think that's like such a great way to end mm-hmm. give us a lot of inspiration for our next dream courses Yeah, absolutely.